Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsiegood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. By way of introduction, I am Jess Armine. I have 45 years healthcare experience. I've been an EMT paramedic. I've been an RN. I'm a doctor of chiropractic since 1986. I have got emergency department uh, training. I've been a critical care nurse. I have expertise in epigenetics, forensics, methylation, neuroendocrinology, which I'll explain in a little bit, functional medicine, nutrigenomics, supply kinesiology, live blood cell analysis, and Okay. Well, anyway, I have a lot of nicknames, some of them not so complimentary, but the two that have stuck are the neurotransmitter whisperer and the Sherlock Holmes of chronic diseases, which is the picture you see. Okay. So hopefully I'll live up to my nicknames. Uh, Just so everybody knows, I put my financial and competing interest disclosure. I'm self-employed independent healthcare practitioner in the United States. I'm not being compensated for this webinar. I have no financial or competing interest with the LDN Research Trust or any other person or entity mentioned herein, and the the opinions expressed are my own and do not represent the policies of the LDN Research Trust, okay? And I never take anybody's information without giving them acknowledgement, Uh, so I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Ben Lynch, who's letting me use uh, some of his genetic information. Elizabeth Elizma Lambert in Australia, who um, is letting me use some of the concepts in her book that is co-authored by myself. I'll slow down, don't worry. Uh, leaky Gut, Leaky Cells, Leaky Brain, and Jillian Crowther, who is um, the chief researcher at, at the AONM.org for the use of her cell danger response slides. This is going to be a unique seminar, webinar, okay, because I have the pleasure of speaking to medical professionals and lay people. Okay, so here's how it's going to work. I am not looking to talk over anyone. You're not going to be impressed that I can pronounce polysyllabic terms, okay, but I do need to speak to the professionals and to everybody else. So If I'm going through something that seems very technical, worry not, just wait for another slide because guess what? I'll be explaining it simply after that. By the end of this, you're going to know how how a functional medicine practitioner thinks. You're going to know how we go about looking at things because we're going to do some case studies. And I'm also going to give you tips on how to pick out a practitioner. Okay, very good. So here we go. So what can you expect today? For everybody... We're going to define what a functional medicine practitioner is and does, discuss the difference between classical and functional medicine, show you how to how a how you will benefit from a true integrative approach, put it all together with some case studies, and like I said, some tips on how to pick out a practitioner. For the professionals listening, the purpose of this lecture is to be cohesive, not divisive. Let's face it, guys and gals. For far too long, our professions have been in divergence, and the only people suffering are our patients. So please do not take anything that I say amiss. I'm not being adversarial, but I will point out some simple truths. And the whole goal here is so that we need to work together for the highest good of our 
of those we serve. Okay, so what's the real difference between classical and functional medicine? By the way, I'm going to use the term functional medicine practitioner. You're going to see it abbreviated as FMP. And that's going to represent any healthcare professional that practices within the parameters you're going to see that I'm about to share with you. These practitioners do have varied backgrounds and degrees. Now, in medicine, I've been around for a long time. Okay. I mean, really. Okay. In medicine, there's this uh, buzzword, evidence-based medicine. And it used to be, let's find the best evidence to treat people. But where did that evidence come from? And I think our medical colleagues would agree that it used to be patient values and preferences, but it became industry values and preferences. Because, well, for true, because you know, I'll show you in a minute. And it was industry-funded clinical expertise. So the studies coming out are funded by the industry. And the best evidence isn't necessarily the best evidence. Now, on the other hand, functional medicine practitioners tend to start using things like genetics, digestion, structural, mechanical stuff, and what seems like woo-woo, like energy things. Okay. So functional medicine from the classical point of view, I found this in Wikipedia. <clears throat> so I'm going to read it. Functional medicine is a form of alternative medicine that encompasses a number of unproven and disproven methods and treatments. Its proponents claim that it focuses on root causes of diseases based on interactions between the environment and gastrointestinal, endocrine, and immune systems to develop individualized treatment plans. It has been described as pseudoscience quackery, and it is at its essence a rebranding rebranding of complementary and alternative medicine. By the way, I'm from Brooklyn, okay? So I talk very fast. I'm gonna calm down, okay? And for those in the, in the UK, I know you like the Brooklyn accent, so every once in a while, I slip into it. But this begs the question, why would the assessment of root causes, the proven relationship between the environment, endocrine, and the immune systems, like in psychoneuroimmunology, psychoneuroendocrinology, neuroendoimmunology, gut, brain axis, and so forth, and the development of individualized treatment plans be considered quackery. Hmm. Well, here's some things I want you to, this is a saying that I want you to hold on to. <clears throat> this was said by Sherlock Holmes by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I have no data yet. It's a capital mistake to theorize before one has data because insensibly one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. And this is a critical thing. In traditional medicine, they will take sets of symptoms and labels and label them as diseases for the purpose of identifying a matching pharmaceutical protocol, essentially treating the result of the illness, not the illness. And anybody with a chronic illness can attest to this. But how did it get this way? And I've been around a long time. So in the 1960s area and before, especially the United States, the general practitioner was king. The general practitioner was that person who knew you, who went to your house in the middle of the night if you were sick, knew your family, and was your advocate. So if you got sent to a specialist, that specialist would barely talk to you and say, I'll call your doctor. And your doctor would pick it up from there because that was the person you trusted. The 1970s came along, and there was this transition to specialties and the GP was snubbed by the medical community. Medical training was done by referring to algorithms, 
with suggested treatment protocols. Um, anyone who's from that time remembers doctors walking around with these little books inside their lab coats. They were called little brown spirals. And they were very cool. If you had a lot of knowledge, you just didn't know what to do with it. You could follow these algorithms along and they would give you suggested protocols, testing, and you could follow it along and make a diagnosis. Well, soon thereafter, medicine became corporatized. No longer were doctors and nurses running it. Corporations, and we know that corporations like their profits. So the suggested protocols became standards of care, meaning that if you didn't follow the straight and narrow, you were, consider, you were committing malpractice. Diagnoses had to be proven by tests. And we all know that sometimes the tests don't exactly show what's wrong. Physicians were given less and less time to be with their patients. I don't think anybody out there can argue with the fact that, you know, you used to be able to spend some time with your family doctor, tell them what was going on and so forth. Now, if you get five to 15 minutes, you're lucky. And doctors had barely enough time to address the chief complaint and, and usually became hemmed into their own specialties without talking to one another. Okay. And they just kind of went into their little you know, holes and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And that's what I'm going to do. So guess what? And I feel bad. Medical physicians can't be physicians any longer, okay? This resulted in treatment according to the acute care model, which I'll explain in a couple of minutes. And who has suffered are those with chronic conditions because chronic conditions require a lot more work. So in the acute care model, which is what, how medicine is run today, the premise is get rid of the root cause and the body will heal itself. Not necessarily true. And when a condition becomes chronic, people are taught to manage it rather than to try and cure it. And here's why, because there's confusion as to why someone will not heal. A lot of times the patient themselves is blamed, okay? Being histrionic, symptom magnification, malingering. And the conclusion sometimes is that there are certain pathologies that cannot be healed. The common wisdom these days is that Lyme disease cannot be healed. Uh, I want to say nonsense because it is nonsense. Okay. The functional medicine premise is that there are root causes, things that cause problems and downstream effects, the symptoms created by the root causes. If you identify both and treat both, you have a good shot at healing something. In chronic conditions, those, those um, mechanisms that get you he healing again will not reboot without intervention, you have to intervene. And both foundational treatment, which is treatment of the cells and the tissues and so forth, and targeted root cause treatment need to be administered. And in addition, the functional medicine practitioner will delve into the effect of the person's belief system and coach them into a healthy mindset, which believe it or not, is scientifically proven to be super important. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, what is necessary is a blending of allopathic and functional medicine. Neither profession has all the answers. If we could actually integrate in true integrative medicine, not some of the stuff that you see out there these days, which are really just rebranding something else. Okay. If we could give somebody the best of both worlds, there'd be very little illness. So collaborating is the best way, okay? What holds us back from collaborating? Well, <clears throat> it's the way we think about things. I'm leading to something here, people. 
Okay. I could do a lecture on take this for that, take this for that, take this for that. And, you know, here's a whole bunch of vitamins and so forth, but that's not getting anybody anywhere. You have to know how to think of these things. Okay. I treat complex multifactorial cases very successfully all the time. It's the point of view. It's the thinking process. So what has separated us, the alternative and traditional medicine people? One, basing treatment solely on scientific proof as demonstrated by placebo-controlled double-blind studies. And everybody says, well, what's wrong with that? Well, <laughs> who's, who's paying for the studies? Okay, I'm not even going to go into the conspiracy stuff. No, no. You know as well as I do, depending on who's paying for the studies and you're going to get the answers you're looking for. And worse, ignoring observational or anecdotal evidence that may lack enough scientific studies according to the, to the previous. And more than that, ignoring intuitive insight, thereby forgetting the wisdom of Albert Einstein, who said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We've created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. Now, I'm not getting woo-woo here. I'm not going sky high. But when I'm taking care of a child, and I take care of a lot of autistic children and other children, when a mother's intuition says, bump and a bump, I listen. Okay? So for today, just today only, let's agree to not depend on a single source of data. Let's agree that we'll consider data that was up to this time considered unusable because it was unproven, alternative, woo-woo, or simply unfamiliar to us, okay? So how are we gonna do this? We're gonna accept a combination of scientific and clinical data utilizing intuitive insight and never, ever, ever say or even think that can't happen. By the way, I mentor and teach a lot of doctors. If I even think they're saying that word, they get kicked out of the course. Why? It cuts out lines of, lines of investigation. We need to open our minds by saying or thinking, I wonder how that happened. So when a patient says a particular symptom, you just don't shake your head and say that can't happen, okay? Start thinking why that would happen, okay? Why has functional medicine flourished? Well, we've kind of picked up where everything's left off. So when a desperate mother has a suffering child that no one else could diagnose or treat successfully, it's the functional medicine practitioner that takes up the gauntlet because we think outside the box. And in pure New York Brooklynese, in other words, who are you gonna call? That's the Ghostbusters thing, okay? We shine with chronic illnesses, autoimmune disorders, fibromyalgia, polymyalgia, MS, Parkinson's, ME, bipolar disorder, and so forth. So let's agree on what a chronic illness is and not, okay? Chronic illnesses have something that set them off, okay? And have resulted in specific expressions. Chronic illnesses are physiologic processes, okay? As, as such, they can be resolved. Chronic illnesses often require a multidisciplinary approach. Chronic illnesses require a different point of view on the, on the uh, part of the practitioner. That's why I'm constantly saying complex multifactorial illnesses because they're all multifactorial, okay? Let me tell you what they're not. Chronic illnesses, you're not born with one, okay? They're not the fault of the patient, okay? Chronic illnesses are not chance occurrences or rolls of the cosmic dice. And I know I'm going to get it for this, okay? Autoimmune disorders are not unrecoverable. It's a double negative, right? <clears throat> as, they have, as they have precipitating factors, 
that initiate the pathologic process. And people who argue with me about that and actually survive the argument, that's a joke, okay? Uh, I always ask them, why now? In other words, if you have rheumatoid arthritis or you develop Hashimoto's, anything that's considered autoimmune, why at a certain point? Well, it's genetic. Well, if it was genetic, how come it wasn't at birth? Okay, you have to open it up and saying, well, maybe a set of circumstances kicked off the genetic predisposition. And I'm going to show you how we think about that. Okay, so here's the functional practitioner thought pattern. In other words, what does it mean to think outside the box? Okay, first thing, all of life happens within the cell and it's protected and supported by the cell membrane. We tend to think in diagnoses, you know, all these diagnoses out here, but everything starts with the health of the cell. So if you heal the cells, you heal the body. Because the fact is that cells get together, they become tissues. Tissues get together, they become organs. Organs get together, they become organ systems, and then you have a person. The basics of cellular function, very simple. They create energy, they manage energy, and they waste manage. Uh, my good friend, Sean Bean, this muscular guy on the right-hand side, and myself developed a doth thought paradigm called bioindividualized medicine a while ago. It's not something you buy. It was simply a thought paradigm. And it included considerations of epigenetics, mitochondrial function, the NEI super system, which I'm going to explain, and cell membrane integrity, that if we thought about all of these things and looked for aberrations, we wouldn't miss too much and we'd start healing people. And I'm going to go through one thing at a time. Okay, we're going to start off with mitochondrial function. By the way, do you ever notice that different chronic illnesses kind of have the same symptoms? They may have a little bit different here and there, but they all have fatigue, they all have chronic pain, mood changes, brain fog. You know, I noticed that too. And I was wondering, was there a common denominator? And in 2013, Robert Navio, who is an MD, PhD at the Metabolic and Mitochondrial Disease Center at the University of Southern California Medical School, wrote a, wrote a paper called The Cell Danger Response. And it described what happens in the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, when it is attacked. Okay, this is the paper itself. And if you really want to lose your hair, start reading this paper, okay? Because essentially what the cell danger response is, is how our cells respond to a threat that could injure or kill it. And it basically happens in our mitochondria and they will, the mitochondria will downregulate as a protective mechanism, ignore it. When I say a word that you don't understand, ignore it because you know I'm gonna explain it on the next slide. So for the scientifically minded amongst us, this is exactly what happens. The mitochondria will decrease oxygen consumption and essentially oxidize the internal environment it will stiffen the membranes to kind of trap the bug. Okay, it will release antiviral and antimicrobial chemicals, specifically hypochlorous acid, not hydrochloric, but hypochlorous, which is available everywhere. And we were using it a lot during COVID. There's increase in mitochondrial fission, there's interference with DNA methylation, and the cells do this in order to kill the invader. But I'm a big one on if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. <clears throat> That's why when I have explanations, you don't hear me using a lot of big words. So this is what the cell danger response response is. And it's really important that you understand this. 
It's the metabolic response of the cell to protect itself and you from harm. It's the basis of reestablishing your normal function. And it all occurs in the mitochondria. The mitochondria, gee, remember the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell? <clears throat> this is exactly where all of life is because this is what produces our energy. I found this little uh, thing, Mito the movie, medical community's best kept secret. Okay, yes, it may all be in your head, but it could be affecting other organs too. Got Mito? You're not alone. Don't know a thing about it? <laughs> you're not alone either. It's complex. But guess what? Fix this and you fix everything. So what activates the cell danger response and what causes the initial damage to the mitochondria? Well, kind of makes sense. This I made myself based on the cell danger response paper. Think about it. Heavy metals, plastics, benzene, all that kind of stuff obviously will injure a cell. Mold, fungi, bacteria, viruses, parasites, easy, right? But what has been ignored and is just as injurious is all the psychological, emotional, and spiritual things that fall us, like yelling, abuse, isolation, abandonment, PTSD. It doesn't have to be one big event. It could be a non-nurturing childhood, okay? And the cells will be damaged just as much as if you poured mercury in them. And this is proven on a scientific basis. So the next time somebody says it's all in your head, okay, you can take the particular scientific paper I'm going to show you and throw it at them, okay? Because the heart is a psychoneuroendocrine and immunologic organ, okay? This is taken from... Where is it? Oh, Advanced Experimental Medical Biology in 2000. Where is it? 2018? Yeah. Okay. And essentially, this said that the heart is able to process neurological signals independently of the brain. And the heart communicates with the psyche through the neuroendocrine immune system in a highly integrated way. In other words, emotions, if you will, will affect everything else. Okay. So. And if you'll also notice here in the last line, it says, <clears throat> the heart uh, communicates in order to maintain homeostasis, which is your balance of the whole body, which with peculiarities specific to males and females, which only proves one thing men are from Mars and women are from Venus. We've always known that. Here's the proof. I hope somebody's laughing out there. Okay, so when you do get a cell danger response, it occurs, what happens is, is a cascade of changes, which I said in all the fancy stuff a while ago. There's changes in electron flow, which is your mitochondrial energy, uh, oxygen consumption, uh, the cell wall integrity, your availability of vitamins, and really important, your metal homeostasis. So normally, we get rid of metals that we're breathing through the air. If this occurs and it sticks, that's how we get heavy metal burden without being exposed to heavy metals directly. Now, when the danger's passed, and for you people in the UK, you all know Danger Mouse, <clears throat> I try and put some comedy in here so you'll giggle. Uh, there's a sequence of events that reverse the cell danger response, promote healing, and when the interference re is removed, then the cell's function reboots. Now, we've all gotten like a strep throat when we were kids and so forth, where you had something where you just felt rubbish. <sighs> You know, the doctor gave you medicine and a couple of days later, you start feeling a bit better. But there's always that point where you, I'm turning the corner. Okay, you know, you're going to get better and you start getting better rapidly. 
that's when the cell danger response has reversed and you're starting to heal, okay? But when there's chronic or multiple cell danger responses, you're gonna have numerous symptoms. And sadly, the healing mechanisms don't reboot because the negative effects on the healing mechanisms synergize. This is what Dr. Navio pointed out. And healing becomes impossible unless treating the root causes and the downstream effects. And here's where the divergence between allopathic and functional medicine thinking occurred. Okay, because there's a significant difference in the way you treat acute conditions and chronic conditions. Dr. Navio, in a, another paper that he wrote in 2018 called Metabolic Features and Regulation of the Healing Cycle, said when caring for acute disruptions of health, careful identification of the trigger and so forth is a good part, is an important part of good medical care. However, dealing with chronic illness, treatments based on the rules of acute care medicine have proven less helpful and even caused harm by producing unwanted side effects. All that emphasis I put in, okay? And to have an MD, PhD actually say this, I was not only flabbergasted, but I was very grateful because us, us alternative medicine practitioners have always known that, okay? But we've never been able to prove it on a scientific basis. So what does this all create? What are we all talking about? Inflammation, okay? And inflammation is not a term that you just go, that's it. Okay, no. Inflammation causes all the suffering we face. Okay, inflammation will cause cardiovascular diseases, cancer, Alzheimer's, autoimmune diseases, and so forth. It's the inflammation that kicks off the genetic predisposition. So that's how you know you have the inflammation. You wonder why does one person get this and another person get that? It's because of the genetic predisposition. Okay, so guess what? There's a great poster by LiveLoveFruit.com. How inflammation affects the body. And I show this to my patients and I show them the look in the brain. If you have inflammation, it can cause depression, autism, poor memory, Alzheimer's. In the liver, it can cause toxic load to build up. In the thyroid, it can cause Hashimoto's, a disruption in hormone functions. Why it affects the whole body. Why more one place primarily than another? That's a, you know, that depends on other factors. But chronic inflammation caused by a stuck cell danger response, which was caused by all those root causes we talked about, is how we got here. Now we have our choice. Do we go back and fix that and feed the body so and make sure that it has what it needs to run? Or do we treat the downstream effect, we treat the symptoms? Well, you really got to do both. But if you only do one, if you only treat the symptoms, what has caused it continues. If you get rid of the root cause and you've gotten past a certain point, then all those downstream effects remain and the person remains ill anyway. This is what happens with Lyme disease, okay? You can wipe it because it's been chronic, you can wipe it out. But if the dysfunction from the Lyme disease remains, you don't see any symptom improvement, okay? Or, or you see symptom improvement and with the slightest amount of inflammation, up, you know, upregulation from a virus or something else, you're going to see the same symptoms that you think are Lyme. So the conclusion is Lyme is never, ever gone when it really is. So increases in inflammation have caused in our timeframe, a lot of cardiovascular issues, 
stomach issues, diabetes, metabolic disorders, adrenal fatigue, but the most, uh, the greatest target for chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is also known as chronic inflammation is in the nervous system. And this is why we have such a high amount of people with kids with autism, lots of anxiety out there, OCD, migraines, headaches, um, behavioral issues, dysautonomia, neuropathies, and all kinds of things, okay? It's from the chronic inflammation that has caused the imbalances, okay? Also in my bio-individualized uh, medicine, bio medicine paradigm, we start looking at genetics. And <laughs> I wanted to make this very simple for everybody, okay? Because when you talk about genetics, you're always talking about SNPs, which are single nucleotide polymorphisms, genes, pathways, and everybody gets nuts. Well, I'll tell you why it gets nuts. If you look at this, this is the Roche biochemical pathways. The, the, um, the link is down below. This is an interactive PDF, okay? You want to lose your hair? Look, you want to lose your hair? Try and read through this thing, which I have, <laughs> okay, way back when. They're complex and practitioners speak about genetics in this impenetrable code. Well, I'm gonna demystify it for you. I'm gonna decode it for you right now. When you talk about genetics, we're not talking about individual genes. The genes create an enzyme. Our body works by enzymes. Okay, so if you look at a different pathway, you'll see a bunch of genes there turned into enzymes. And what we talk about are polymorphisms or SNPs. And if it's green on most, um, on most uh, studies, it means that it's running normally, okay? It will run normally, innately. If it's yellow or heterozygous, it will innately have 60% function. And if it's homozygous or red, it has innately 20% function. Why do I keep saying innately? What I mean is innately, which means that if it's, there's nothing else going on, that particular enzyme will work like that. But remember, you were born with these. So what's the big deal? Think of them as different uh, highways. One, the green being an eight-lane highway, heterozygous being a four-lane highway, homozygous being a two-lane highway. Or if you're in the UK, the green being an M-road, the yellow being a B-road, uh, and the red being a C-road. And I've been on your C-roads. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay. So... The real problem here is that traffic slows down the pathways. So traffic is things like bacteria, heavy metals, viruses, parasites, food allergens, leaky gut syndrome causing inflammation, lack of substrate, lack of the stuff you need to go through it, lack of your vitamins and minerals, the presence of factors that will speed up or slow down the enzymatic activity. Obviously, if it's homozygous or a two-lane highway, it'll block up a whole lot quicker than um, heterozygous, which is a four-lane highway. But let me give you words of wisdom. The presence of a polymorphism or SNP does not mean you're ill. And the lack of a polymorphism does not mean you're well. So think about the eight-lane highway. Do you think you can put enough traffic in there to slow it down? Yep. I get calls sometimes when people are reading about MTHFR, the dreaded MTHFR. And I get these calls saying, I just, I, I, I just found out I'm compound heterozygous MTHFR. I'm like, yes. Oh, what do I do? I'm like, are you sick? No. 
Okay, you're not sick. You were born like this. Okay, these are things that give you a heads up. And I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you how to think about genetics right now. Okay, here's some words of wisdom. Genetics loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger, or lifestyle pulls the trigger. So, what you're doing, what you're exposed to, is what creates the problem, not the innate genetic structure. You were born like that. There are very few things out there that make you become ill just when you're born, and we already know what they are. So, nutritionists look at the pathways in a different way. In other words, how can we optimize their function? I'm going to use Dr. Ben Lynch's uh, earlier version of strategy. And what it's going to look like is you're going to see the gene um, or which creates the enzyme. And in um, green are the cofactors that you need to run it, the vitamins and minerals. Uh, in orange, it'll be things that increase activity, purples, decrease activity. And of course, yellow and um, red for the homozygous and heterozygous. Okay. So. This is a folate pathway, specifically my folate pathway. Okay, folate pathway starts with green leafy vegetables. And when the folate gets rendered by these various enzymes, it gets turned into dihydrofolate, tetrahydrofolate, and then a bunch of fancy names until it becomes this big, long 510 methylene tetrahydrofolate, where MTHFR, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, reduces it to the active 5-methylfolate, okay? So if you've got a lot of problems in here, you can give somebody 5-methylfolate, but that's not fixing anything. You're giving them the result of the pathway. What does this pathway need to work? Well, just a little consideration, okay? If you look through, you see NAD is necessary, NAD, 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 and then a lot of ATP, ATP, B6, magnesium, ATP. So what this pathway needs is absorbable folate, green leafy vegetables or whatever, okay, B3, B2, B6, magnesium, zinc, SAM, okay, and most important, ATP, which is your energy, which comes from your mitochondria. Okay, things like folic acid, green tea, grapefruit seed extract, methotrexate, sulfur will slow it down at this stage, okay? If we look at the cobalamin pathway, which is how you get your methylcobalamin or your methyl B12, the cobalamin, which is B12, enters in this, goes around to become methylcobalamin. And what you need here, zinc, SAM, B2, B3, okay? But what can slow it down? Nitrous oxide, lead, mercury, hydrogen peroxide, acid aldehyde, which you get from um, a lot of candida, uh, inflammation, a lot of heavy metals. So when you're looking to optimize a pathway, you start thinking, okay, what does the body need to run this pathway and make sure it gets it? Or you can just give somebody methylcobalamin and 5-methylfolate for the rest of their lives. You're not fixing anything. Okay. If I look at this as a catecholamine pathway, which is what the excitatory neurotransmitters are, and specifically it's mine. Okay. If I look at this pathway and look at the reds and yellows, I'm going to say to myself, gee, I'm going to have a little trouble breaking that down. Where's the backup going to be? Backup's going to be in dopamine. And high dopamine will give you excitation. It'll give you, can give you OCD, anxiety, so forth and so on. And very, very high will give you autism or schizophrenia. Okay. But when I look at this pathway, I'm saying, okay, well, how can I, 
how can I help somebody who's constantly with that? Well, first, I need to counterbalance. I need to support the other side, which is GABA and serotonin, and then support this pathway with what it needs to run. Okay? But you also have to consider why this is expressing. Because since I was born this way, why do I have symptoms? Okay, it wasn't the way I was born. It was whatever the environment did. And it's usually accumulative. Okay? Think about histamine. Histamine is a biggie. You know, you start looking for the DAO enzymes and see if there's polymorphisms there, H&MT, because if you know the genetics, you can predict how histamine will break down. And histamine is necessary. It's an excitatory neurotransmitter, but it's also very necessary for life. But the histamine pathway, if, I, if there's a problem with DAO, I'm going to know how to intervene if somebody shows symptoms of histamine intolerance. Um, mast cell activation disorder, stuff like that, which is usually histamine intolerance. Or if I see a lot of uh, H&MT problems, I'll know how to intervene on the internal pathway. Okay, it's just a heads up. So let me give you an example how genetics really can be used. There was a study done in 2013, newborn screening for autism in search of candidate biomarkers. They wanted to identify newborns who were at risk for autism, very laudable goal. So what they did was they got a bunch of, you know, however they did their studies, and they found out that if they had these groupings of biomarkers, that they met, that may lead to, let's say, autoimmune, autoimmune targeting, gastrointestinal dysfunctions, decreased methionine metabolism, and these would give rise to autism because autism is pretty rampant. So the use of the epigenetics increases your index of suspicion of the pathways that would be compromised under an oxidative stress load. In other words, when you put that traffic in, where's the glitch going to happen? Okay. The benefit of this research is that it can point to possible dysfunctions and you can predict. So you might know how to feed your baby. You might not know whether your immunizations would be a bad idea. Um, and on the other side, if you have a child with autism, you can, there's several things you can look at that will decrease the inflammation in the brain and allow the cells to start working again. So you can prevent pathology and you can treat when there is pathology by knowing that it's just not a roll of the cosmic dice, that there are specific things that you could actually intervene. Here's the difficulty. In this particular um, abstract, it said diagnosis shortly after birth would be beneficial for the early initiation of treatment. <clears throat> the problem with that, and it's not done maliciously here, is that the presumption is, when you look at this, that you're born with autism. And although the entire paper refutes that premise, it's a commonly held belief. No one has been asking, well, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, autism was one in 5,000 births. I may be, I may be um, exaggerating a bit, but now it's getting close to one in 25 births. Why is that? And it's not better diagnosis. You don't have that kind of changes, okay? So the one glitch is the word diagnosis, okay? A diagnosis should be an estimate of the cause of a problem. So a sore throat is a symptom. 
that strep throat is a diagnosis. IBS is not a diagnosis. It's irritable bowel syndrome. Celiac disease, diagnosis. Hyperacidity, not a diagnosis. H. pylori induced gastritis, we know why now. So the symptoms are the effective root causes and diagnosis should be the root causes. So diagnosing an infant at birth with autism based on genetic polymorphisms may have a counterproductive effect of labeling, the feeling that nothing can be done in today's thought pattern, and the parents may be dissuaded from making healthy choices for the child and preventing autism because they're being convinced that autism is a roll of the cosmic dice. So this particular study showed us that autism does have root causes, as do all chronic illnesses. And you can have some predictive power, power if you know the genetics. And in so doing, within their pathways, the SNPs provide a map for the clinician in either treatment or prevention, which is very cool. So just remember, your genes are not your destiny. And if you understand the pathways, which is more the province of your uh, clinician, okay, you can utilize them to your best benefit. I have to caution you, there are programs out there that will go through your genetics and then tell you what to take. Avoid them, okay? Anything that tells you exactly what you need is biased, okay? And trust me, I do this all day, every day, okay? There's no, everything has to be individualized. It's only one set of data. Okay, we also look at the NEI super system. This is where the differentiation went from linear to integrative thinking. Okay, I'm not going to go through all the little um, all the little spaces here, but I want you to let you know that neurology, immunology, and endocrinology are not separate systems. Okay, the neurological system's biomarkers are neurotransmitters. Okay, the endocrinology endocrinological system, which are your glands, their biomarkers are hormones, and the immune system's biomarkers are things called cytokines and chemokines. So each system has their unique biomarkers, but each of the systems have the receptors for the other guy's biomarkers. But let me tell you a secret, you know why this is so cool? Because they're all talking to each other. Those three systems are consistently chattering like a bunch of kids, Cub Scouts in a tent. And I've been a Boy Scout leader since God's been a Boy Scout. Let me tell you something. If you, <laughs> there's no way of shutting shutting up Cub Scouts on a camping trip, you know, <laughs> they're like <laughs> they're constantly talking. Okay, and these three systems constantly talk to one another. And for those of you who require some scientific evidence, this neuroendocrine imbalances of the immune system by Taub and cellular immunology. Okay, and this again was in 2008 where there was substantial evidence now exists supporting the bidirectional communication between the neuroendocrine and the immune systems. And, and I can't see it up here. Okay, um, psychoneuroendocrine immunology, okay, in 2017, basically says that and proved that these communications between the mind, the body, the neurological system, the immune system, the endocrine system is a scientifically valid um, concept. You know, we talk about psychosomatic diseases with disdain. Oh, that's psychosomatic. All that is is psycho of the mind affecting some of the body. And I always look at somebody and say, hey, have you ever heard of somatopsychic disease? 
some of the body creating mood disorders. They're like, no, I'm like, sure you have PMS, PMT. Okay. Isn't that mood disorder created by hormonal changes? Okay. Isn't that the body creating problems in the mind? Okay. So if we realize that the neuroendocrine and immune systems talk to one another, and we know that they're affecting each other's system, we know that if one goes off, the others are going to go off. Okay. And if we use the system as a whole, it takes away diagnosis and treatment from one system and puts it into a more multidisciplinary approach or a more holistic approach. So if you look at everything there, okay, you can start healing people because it's not the province of an endocrinologist. It's not the province of a neurologist. It's not the province of another three separate specialties. It should be the province of the practitioner who can put it all together. I like to call it a generalist, but nobody likes to be labeled as a generalist, but that's what we really need. Okay, and the last concept is the cell membrane integrity. You know, we talk about cell membranes as if they're just a membrane, okay? Whoop, the wrong way. Okay, but believe it or not, this is the most important thing in the body. Okay, because on a cell membrane are all your receptors, and it keeps wanting to do that, are all your receptors, they have different channels, okay? Um, it's a semi-permeable membrane, keeping stuff in that's supposed to be in and keeping stuff out that's supposed to be out. Okay, it's, it helps you send messages through the body. It contains what you like to call transmembrane proteins, pumps or channels. It contains the receptors for various biological functions. And it's how your immune system knows you from somebody else. So believe it or not, the master of the cell is more the cell membrane than it is the nucleus. Okay, if you have leaky membranes, it's going to affect all kinds of physiological processes. And we talk about leaky gut. Okay, and everybody says, ah, what the heck is that? Well, guess what? It's a thing. Okay, and if you have leaky gut, which talks about cell membrane integrity, you can have leaky cells and you can have leaky brain. Hence the book that Elizabeth and I wrote. Okay, so here's an example for you. Uh, this is from. Um, Harvard, uh, the link is down there. This is a, this is a uh, video called ETC Animation. And at the very beginning, you can see the uh, cell membranes, which are a phospholipid bilayer. And in this below it, which is um, an area that they have two membranes, you have this collection of protons. This particular complex is called ATP synthase. And how you create your energy is the protons actually go through here and turn it like a grist mill and produce these little guys up here, which is your actual energy. So you need these protons here in order to run this little grist mill. If the membrane becomes leaky, so to speak, what's gonna happen is those protons are gonna leak out because they're very high energy and ATP synthase slows down and stops working and the cell dies. Okay, so maintaining cell membrane integrity is something that the functional medicine practitioner concentrates on because that's part of healing. And that's how you fix lots of chronic illnesses, okay? The most common form of cell membrane disintegrity is leaky gut syndrome, okay? What happens is that because of damage, 
from xenobiotics, from antibodies, from drugs, from physical stress, infections, yada, 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 yada. There's a breakdown of this, of the barrier between the inside of the gut and the basement membrane. And what happens at first is those antigens get in and the immune system starts working on it and you start getting food allergies and intolerances. After a little while, you get multi-system abnormalities and then it can progress to autoimmunity. This is all the amount of inflammation that's being built up over time. Okay, and this has been shown again on a scientific basis for those people who like things a little more complex. Okay, this is exactly how it works. You got to be careful with uh, with uh, some of the treatments out there for leaky gut because if you understand the process of it, that the cell, uh, the connection between the cells just not pulled apart, it's actually uh, cells that are actually dying that separate it. Uh, if you understand how this process works, you can really help it. Okay, so I'm going to tell you in a little while how to fix leaky gut. But again, for those who are more scientifically minded amongst us, there is a gut-brain axis, okay, showing how the microbiome inf influences anxiety and depression, okay? And this is where you're getting all the various probiotics these days that are showing that they can break down histamine better or the things called psychobiotics that will help mood and so forth. You know, the studies in here are getting pretty good where you can kind of target various and sundry uh, probiotics. But the fact is that you do need a good generalized microbiome for your health. That would be the takeaway. Okay. So understand that chronic inflammation is what causes all problems. Okay. And Dr. Navio in his original paper showed that degenerative disorders, neuropsychiatric disorders, autism, autoimmune diseases are all caused by cell danger responses that don't want to go away. Okay. Call them stuck, call them chronic, call them whatever you like. But once they get where they are, okay, your cells cannot heal. Your mitochondria will not work and you will get progressively ill. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.